I just want to explain a little bit about this because it's something that uh, so I'm a bike journalist. I don't really care, to be honest, much about politics because it's all commentary and nothing seems to make a difference. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> but what doesn't interest me, as in my world of bike journalism, is meeting people and finding out about the world and how things work. Should we say it like that? Yeah. So it's like, I want to know why things happen and... Where the source of power is. Yeah, I mean, and often you find the source of power is not where you expect it. Now, I'm Alex Boyce, by the way, and this is Alexander Short. Now, Alex, should I call you Alexander or Alex? What would you... Alex is fine. Okay, so it's Alex and Alex. That's quite ironic because... Same my one of my best friends is also called Alex, and we called Alex and Alex, and that's quite funny. And uh, anyway, so what we're going to talk about is a little bit of politics. Now, I've not really confronted this subject very much in my life, uh, but you have an interesting story. And I was chatting to you the other day, and I said, oh, why don't we just put it down on tape? Yes. You know, and discuss a few ideas and a few things that in your life experience. So could, if you could like summarize for me. Yes, yes. So um, well, what did you do? When did you do it? And what was it about? I think I, okay, so I, I joined the, uh, the uh, Palace of Westminster, the House of Commons as a, as a staffer in 2010. I worked for uh, a few uh, backbench Tory MPs then. And I think, um, and then in 2011, 2012, it must have been, I moved on to, to Brussels uh, to work on the staff of an MEP, maybe you've heard of him, called Nigel Farage. Okay, so you're on his um, staff? Uh, yes, yes. So what does that mean, being on his staff? Well, I, okay, I worked for what was then called uh, EFD, Europe of Freedom and Democracy. It, it now has a, a slightly different name. Um, okay. It's a part of the civil service which provided... Um, a kind of secretaries to a group of of MEPs at that point. It was, I think, Liga Nord, uh, UKIP, uh, and a few other political groupings from across Europe were put into this into this group, and they sit in a part of the of the European Parliament's yeah. hemicycle, which yeah. pertains to, uh, I suppose. You could say that they were almost the, the opposition at the time, almost the only opposition to most of what the Commission were trying to do. Okay. Uh, so, um, so I answered to a group of, of UKIP MEPs, and, um, but to be honest with you, I mostly did my own thing for that time. I, they were overstaffed, and I was, I don't think I was much trusted. I'd come, of course, from, from the Tories just before, and... Um, <laughs> So, I was, so the Tories were seen as too extreme to the left by these group of MEPs, maybe. So much left or right, but they weren't, um, they weren't seen as, as, as your sceptics, certainly okay. not. Uh, and I was, I was actually... Uh, so that's an interesting point, yeah. for a second. So this group of people in Europe, yeah. they only wanted to work with Eurosceptics. So it was almost like a qualification before anybody steps into their circle you have to be a Eurosceptic. Was that the sort of... Not quite. Uh, I, um, I worked for only, uh, obviously, British MEPs in that group, and they were all Eurosceptic. But I, I, I seem to... I'm pretty sure Lega Nord were on the same group, and, and they weren't Eurosceptic. But, you know, they were Italians, and I wasn't involved in Italian politics, certainly, at the time. So, yeah. 
and I think that, do you know what, there's some Finns in there, I think the true Finns were perhaps in the same yeah. EFD group, but I only, I was only involved with, with, uh, yeah. with, uh, you know, UKIP, and of course, they saw the, the Tories as, um, euro which they were, they were euro mm. and, and you have to remember, back then, um, uh, nobody, nobody in the Eurosceptic lobby wanted a referendum. The people who wanted a referendum then were, were I remember on my corridor, there was a, a, a Tory uh, MEP called Dr. Charles Tannock, and he was one of the first people who said, we have to have a referendum. Yeah. The idea being that, of course, it would just get UKIP off the political scene because yeah. they would lose. Okay. Um, as soon as there was a referendum, of course, he then wanted a second one. <laughs> well, you know, best of three. Uh, um, so, yeah. right, so that's sort of established that. So, so, you, so you're in Europe, you've already been in Westminster. Yeah. How long were you in Westminster for, by the way? Just Right, so I suppose I must have joined at the beginning of the coalition parliament, 2010, wasn't it? And then I was out mm. late 2011, okay. I think. So... Day to day, in both environments, mm -hmm. what was your sort of job? What did you do? Oh, uh, I was uh, I was simply a, a, a gopher for for Tory MEPs who would tolerate me in their offices. I, I wasn't a particularly competent or brilliant um, uh, uh, secretary, um, uh, but there were some there were some things which um, which I, I I saw. I think it's important to make that to make the point as we're coming to another election now that yeah. some of the things that people are arguing about now um, slightly miss the point of of what was going on. Um, we back back then the figure that was often quoted by uh, people like Daniel Hannan was um, uh, that the, the European Commission were passing the great majority of our of our laws in Britain. Um, and it's a very difficult thing to measure because actually... So the laws in Britain, they were saying, Daniel Hannan, his, he was saying that the laws in Britain were being made by Europe. Yes. Right, okay. Which is, which is true. So you, the, the European Commission, the idea was the European Commission would tell our civil service what to do and, um, and our ministers would have to kind of conform to what the civil service would allow. So that they had done a, a kind of benign dictatorship, not in terms of them telling us what to do, but in terms of the parameters within which the uh, legislature were allowed to operate. So quite often, for example, you'd have a frustration building up in the Tory backbenches especially um, because they would want to push for some piece of legislation and someone further forward and closer to the ministries would say, uh, we can't do that because we're not allowed to step outside of certain guidelines. So it's very difficult to say exactly how much influence the European Union had in the legislative process, but it was it was more than you could really hold up statutory instruments and laws and say, look, they've directly done that. It was it was a matter of it was a matter of ever narrowing parameters within which the elected government was allowed to operate. Okay. And this caused a frustration because, of course, what do you think was the re what is that the European model to create stability on a, on a yeah. international scale, basically? Yeah. Of course it is. Yeah, I, that, that's the I mean, idea. And I, I, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't even hugely opposed to, to that idea. But the, the problem was there was a silence about it. Okay. Of course, nobody in a position of power who you elect to a position of power wants to say, actually, I can't do this. So he's got to make up reasons not to be able to do it. Okay. And this is very frustrating because you know that you're not getting honest data back from your own government. So if they can, if they can't do something, they just come clean and say they can't do it. But, but they won't. 
there's, it's not a conspiracy of silence because no conspiracy is necessary. It's not in the interest of people in government to say we can't govern. It's not in their interest to say we've lost control. And so the, the Euroscepticism, I think, started off as a wave of frustration from a few people who kind of saw what was going on. Okay. And one of the ways they could criticise it was say, well, do we need the European Union? Nobody imagined, I don't think even in UKIP, nobody imagined that it would come to the stage at which we had a referendum on the whole thing. The country would vote to leave, and then we would leave. But I have to say, when was that referendum? Three years ago now or something? Yeah. If you still believe that your vote counts for anything, then you're pretty invulnerable to reason. Because actually, we can't leave. We can't leave. And it's because the civil service will trip up any attempt to leave. Yeah. And, and I, would, I would like to... Doesn't this... Because we were joking about this the other day. Doesn't this yeah. take us back to sort of... Uh, doesn't this take us back down to sort of... Yes, Prime Minister, that sort of comedy show from the 90s, where they, yes. they, there's this portrayal of the civil service. It's about the only thing I can think of in the public domain that might give you an idea of what civil service could possibly be like. And of course, it's a parody, a comedy and everything. But, but I mean, is the civil service really like that? Is it very, is it in control, actually? And I've never, I've never, I've never worked in, in, in Whitehall. Yeah. Uh, but yes, I mean, they, they do govern... Uh, well, I mean, we live, in, we live in a very... There's a lot of what we call delegated legislation. So, yeah. so it's, it's the mandate of the civil service to control a lot more than Parliament is able to control because yeah. we have quite a lot of heavy... Uh, we're quite a litigious society, right? Yeah. And, um, and not everything can be controlled from Westminster. And there's been a, a kind of a boom, a proliferation in, in, in legislation which is designed to push power down to smaller and smaller regional bodies yeah. and, and this is this is very much what the European Union would like because um, uh, uh, you mean push it down to smaller bodies you mean to local levels yeah yeah regional assemblies all that sort of thing. they like that yeah yeah if you can so they actually them. like the fact that Scotland for example has its own Parliament Wales has its own Parliament UK. yeah I've, I've, I could show you a map of, of, of Europe divided into uh, sorry of Britain divided into several regions yeah which is um, and indeed the rest of other European countries divided into regions, some of these regions I think crossing borders according to the way that the Commission would like to think that we're sort of, okay. we should be divvied up and governed because it makes more sense to put all the interests of that region in, into one block rather than associate it with a central government. Okay. Um, okay, you know, fine, but the problem was nobody was even talking about it. And I think that what happened, I think what, what has really energized this Eurosceptic sentiment is that people got more and more and more frustrated about nobody being able to really talk about this. Nobody standing up and saying this is what's going on. Yeah. And, you know, for sure a minority of people realized what was going on. And I have to say something else, you know, as we, as we come into this, this election this year, I mean, it won't matter how you vote. I don't think, I, I think what we've done, what's happened with that reference. I saw a poll today that apparently yeah. A, uh, a trustworthy poll says mm. that the Conservatives are ahead by, or could win, th a majority of 36 seats. Yeah, good for them. I mean, I... <laughs> <laughs> is that true, maybe? Yeah, I'm sure it is. I'm sure they'll win. Um, yeah. uh, but um, I'm not sure how much difference it's going to make. Yeah. I mean, if you went... One of the, one of the, uh, the anecdote I'd most like to sort of uh, impart to your, to your audience is... Um, when I worked in Brussels, um, the 
you obviously elect delegates to to the European Parliament, and yeah. the idea the European Parliament's a little bit like the Supreme Soviet. It neither really made nor repealed laws. It just voted on the legislation which was handed to it by the European Commission. Okay. The European Commission is absolutely vast. It's staffed by some of the most intelligent people on earth. Um, most of them uh, completely uh, benign. You know, they, they have good ideas about how they want to do things. They're very competent civil servants. Um, you know, it's not a, it's not an evil uh, institution in terms of the people living in it aren't, aren't um, who run it aren't, aren't malevolent. But yeah. they, they generate more legislation than the parliament can possibly read in the course of a day. So the people voting in parliament, I don't think they really, they don't. The individual MEP probably isn't reading everything that they're voting on. They're, they're responding to a party whip. Isn't that quite true though, in the sense of? across quite a lot of democracies, because even in the States, they, you have senators which sometimes, you know, they're voting because they're being told to yes, vote that way, course, no, and they don't really have time to read. There was that classic one back in the days of George Bush, where, what was it, the, uh, the Patriot Act, and yes. people didn't even read the thing, yeah, and they just yes. sort of voted it in. Of course, this is, co this is common to every representative democracy, of course it is. Yeah. Um, but I'm not sure if it goes quite so far as I've seen in the European Parliament. Yeah. where I would get a call from a friend's cousin who worked in the committee, he's an Austrian lawyer, mm. um, and he would say, meet me, meet me at the cafe in half an hour, yeah. because another department of the commission is passing a law which I don't particularly like, and I'm going to show you as the opposition how to vote against it. So, <laughs> so you have one part of the commission working against another part of the commission and using the parliament only to endorse this this internal squabble within the civil service. So it's not that the parliament represents you, the voter. Yeah. It's the parliament is giving legitimacy to one part of the civil service when it wants to fight another. And I'd, I'd like to make the case, I think that in fact, the British parliament in Westminster is in a similar position. It's a kind of, it's the go-between the different interests within the civil service in, in Whitehall. Yeah. Um, although Whitehall are pretty uniformly, they want the European project to, to, mm. to I, I don't think you get much euro gets in the white hall um is that i mean the european projects if i just say something about it briefly yes i mean we had a world war in the you know the, the 1940s yeah and the outcome of that first it was the uh I've forgotten the name of it the american where they invested in those days, I think it was like $25 billion, which in today's terms was like a lot hundreds of, of billions in yeah, yeah, yeah. the Marshall Plan, that's it, yeah. in regenerating yeah. Europe, yes, from yes. buying donkeys for Greece to yeah. rebuilding factories to, yeah. to, to reanimating the whole of Europe. So it sort of came out of an idea of we were at war, we don't want that to ever happen again, yeah. let's create stability. And it also probably created a pole of stability against, say, the communist Poles, the pole that was growing in the east at the time, correct? Is that? Yes, yes. So <coughs> that's where it came from. It was never about trying to, oh, let's try and control the, uh, the little people. It wasn't that, was it, or not? Mm. Was it trying to control the, it wasn't really trying to control anything, it was just checks, and, was it a form of check and balances well, I mean, on international behavior? I mean, you could say, I suppose, that they, uh, they divided European interests enough that they were de facto the biggest power on earth after that. Yeah. I, I, I dare say some some self-interest. Are you are you making a comparison between the between? I mean, the the idea, I'm trying to sort of get to the idea that Europe started out as a 
stability pact at the end oh, of the yeah, day. Absolutely. That's absolutely. what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and, and, and it just happened to counteract yeah. uh, the Soviet one. And we had sort yeah. of, but it, but it created, it was actually the Americans, by doing the Marshall Plan and stabilizing Europe, they actually created the ability for us to have a stable continent. Yes. Um, and we did the we did the politics well. Can we, to get can, today. we can we credit them with, with the, the work they did with NATO and things like that? I mean if there's okay. one if there's one institution in Brussels I'd keep it, it would be mm. NATO. I'm not sure if they How well do NATO and Brussels go together? Do they like each other? Uh, NATO and the European Commission. Yeah. Do they work well together? Um, yes. Yeah, they like each other. I, you never heard you know, I never I never do you know what I I don't I don't quite know what the you see, the thing is, NATO behaved very badly in East Europe when the when the when the when the wall came down. Yeah, there were kind of deals made at the end of the Cold War with Gorbachev. Um, NATO wouldn't uh, wouldn't start to to intervene in, in East Europe. Yeah, if the if the Soviet Union retreat, I think in fact the vestiges of that deal are still are still. Um, in, I think in, in what was East Germany, I think. NATO still don't conduct field exercises there as a token of, of we're not going oh, to okay. we're not going to misbehave in East Europe. But of course, completely hypocritical. Right? They they were bombing um, um, in, in, in the Balkans. They, they yeah. intervened in the, in the breakup of Yugoslavia and things like yeah. that. So there is um, a sense, I think, uh, and, and I suspect it's particularly strong in East Europe that um, NATO have slightly overstepped their mandate. Yeah. Um, okay, and and of course, uh, there's also a sense in, in a place like uh, Greece that the European Union, the single the single currency, has uh, has done a lot of damage. Mm. I don't think. I, d I think the idea that that we slip in that we could slip into another world war without one of these big supranational governments watching it's just it, it doesn't. I don't think anyone really believes that. No, no. I mean, are we going to get another? Third Reich in, in, in an age when everyone has a Twitter account and a camera phone. And we can do a, We can have a chat like this, and this yeah. chat can be sent across the world, yeah. and everybody can listen. I mean, it's difficult enough for the Chinese to oppress their people, even when they control the internet. I, yeah. I can't imagine a, a fairly kind of bourgeois continent with people who expect certain standards of living really to, to tolerate any kind of crazy behavior. Any behavior from their governments. And I don't think their governments have much yeah. power anyway. So anyway, so let's turn back to England and Brussels because one of the reasons I wanted to chat to you is because you happened, so you, you happened, uh, explain to me how you became involved with working with Nigel Farage because that's the interesting thing because a lot of our, the caricatures of our world is often dominated by single individuals, okay? So he's a, he's a strong, if anybody in the UK knows anything about Europe, unfortunately or for, unfortunately, whatever way you, wish to look at it, his name pops up as like the representation of Great Britain in Europe in yes. many ways, you know. So explain to me, what was your involvement? How did you work? Because it's, well, were you as an assistant? What were you no, doing with no, him? I, I suppose at some point I, I, I went to one of his conferences um, as the frustration at the kind of the, the deadlock against, with the, the parliament against the civil service grew in certain yeah. areas. Um, I thought, well, let's let's have a look at these really uh, hardline neurosceptics, if you like. Um, so you're kind of morbid interest. Let's go and have a look, see what they're up to. Yeah, I, I suppose. And then I, it was 
in those days, remember, ten years ago, almost nobody had really heard of you. If, if, if you saw the UKIP vote represented on a pie chart in a national newspaper, it would always be categorised under other. You know, it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't even distinctive. <laughs> it wasn't a... And, and so UKIP then was... Um, it was full of it was full of very interesting types. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't a kind of uh, a Thatcherite um, no. old boys club at all. It was it was packed with. I think there were probably even communists in there. Okay. You know, it, it was it didn't have any particular central ideology except for we can't do anything unless we pull ourselves out of the European Union. And to be honest with you, I think a lot of a lot of people who were saying that at the time were really saying it in order to make the point that we had to at least have a discussion about yeah. the European Union because the most frustrating thing again was nobody would even talk about where the power lay yeah um, so yeah so and so I just I just went over interviewed um, showed my credentials and they said yes come and join come and join come and join come and join our our, um, our staff in Brussels okay and so UK. I UK yeah all right so and it was, it was great. It was very so you joined in with their staff and you had an interesting time. Right, so what were you doing day to day on the staff of UKIP in Europe? Between what, how long were you doing that for? Uh, well, it must have been about, about a year, I suppose. Okay, it was about a year. So what were you doing day to day? Well, you say go for it. Was it still go for it? Sorry? Are you still go for it? Go for it. Yeah. Uh, it was it was a different type of go for it. Um, I, I, I could choose my, my go for it. Uh, okay. Um, I was left quite often to my own devices. Um, I, I think probably the most useful thing I did, looking back on it, was I dug out a, um, a video of a of a meeting between Nigel and Tony Blair, really, uh, which had had not been indexed in the in the European Parliament's archives. Um, and I had, to, I had to prove to one of the archivists this meeting had taken place. I was able to show written documentation. I said, no, no, it's, it's not here. It's not indexed. And, and the point was, I think, um, Tony Blair got quite a rinsing uh, from, from Nigel. And I don't, know, I don't know why this hadn't been indexed in the archives, but this, this very kind archivist went through sacks and sacks of VHS And found it. And, and we found it. We stuck it on YouTube. And it, it's got a million hits, I think. Oh. Um, it was, that's, when you think about it, things like that are probably the most useful things I ever did, but nobody told me to do that. I did that for my own back. Um, okay. I also did quite a lot of work for the Hungarian party, Fidesz, and after, after I left Brussels, I went, then went back to Budapest to do some more things with it. Yeah. Um, it was, yeah. So you, so you were basically, anything that was, so you, so you were digging out stuff which yeah. helped also, the course, UKIP's cause, Yeah, data basically. crunching and things like that too. Data but crunching. I mean, this wasn't very interesting. And of course, I took a lot of my own initiative with the, with the connection we had with the European Commission. Because there's always, the European Commission, as they say, the, the, the devil's mind, the, the idle mind is the devil's playground. That's the expression. Yeah. Very clever people in there. They all speak three languages, but they're all at war with each other. And so you only have to find where people are fighting each other within the commission to work out that you're going to have somebody who's sort of who's going to who's prepared to help the European opposition to some level. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, but at the time, then they're helping. They're not helping, thinking it's going to do much. It's just no, helping themselves yeah. rather than thinking yeah. it's going to go yeah. anywhere. Exactly. It's mutual interest. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. So. So you were then. So you in the office. So how many people were in the office then? What was I, going on? I wasn't. I wasn't. I wasn't really trusted. So I had my own private office, um, which overlooked Place Looks. Um, uh, I um, 
I was I was really quite isolated within within the staff. I suspect because of where I'd come from before, okay. um, and um, and being quite isolated within the staff, I did a lot of work for people who were really not employing me at all. Um, uh, I mean, I, I was able to be quite creative. I, I sat, I, as I say, I did an awful lot of things toward the end of the Hungarians. Okay. Um, um, because uh, Fidesz, uh, firstly, I, I have a connection with Hungary, but Fidesz, um, the governing party, still the governing party of Hungary, um, they were quite making, controversial. They, now, were making, they? they were making noises at a governmental level, which, yeah. which were only which you would only hear on a sort of fringe of British politics at the time, although yeah. I think we've now overtaken it. But um, yeah. uh, quite controversial, they were quite controversial at the time. You had to remember, though, that Fidesz inherited a, a country from MSDP, the, the Hungarian Socialist Party, where when I lived in Hungary, you needed to sign about five different pieces of paper to buy a stamp. They still had in place, until about 2010, maybe even later, they still had the fundamental law that Constitution, which had been uh, put in place in 1946 when Joseph Stalin was, they'd change it here and there, but uh, it was basically the same constitution. Okay. And they, they up, upgraded the constitution later. Okay. They had, they'd obviously, they'd freed up the markets, but the mm -hmm. civil service was still structured uh, as it as it had been in, in communist times. Time. And a lot of the same people were in charge of it too. Really? Yeah, it was. A, it was a complete... They often used to say, "Same organization, different hats." Right. No, it's same like, same hats as well. Same hats in, in this particular case. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. So, okay. So you're in the office. Yeah. How often? I want to chat about Nigel Farage because I Nigel. find that as a he's great fun. Yeah, he's a. Now, why do I want to chat about him? Because it's a character which is sort of a. You know, he's like he's. He's associated with Brexit, should we say? Yeah. You know, he's one of the him and Boris Johnson. Couldn't have done it without him. Yeah. Yeah couldn't have created this. Now, whether you're pro or anti-Brexit, I'm almost don't really care in the sense of it's not my, my, my opinion is like, or the opinion about it is not that important, but what's more interesting is knowing about the people mm. who are doing what's going on. So, <laughs> so you said Nigel Farage is a lot of fun. So how did you, what did you do with Nigel Farage? What was your interactions with him? And what did you see? Because okay, yeah. it's like, I'm more interested in sort of the observational yeah. things that you saw going on. What's he doing? Is he really a buffoon with these loudmouth no, buffoons? No, he wasn't. He was is he, a buffoon. What is he? No, I mean, he's very intelligent. What is he as a character? Because... Uh, yeah, he's... He's... Um, he's um, there, are two, there are two modes of Nigel. What you see is what you get, by the way. He's not one of these uh, Machiavellian types to, to sort of do something differently behind the scenes. He's very straightforward. There, they, basically, the, the, there's only a volume control on Nigel. There are two modes of Nigel. There's Nigel, and there's Nigel! But uh, <laughs> he was usually absent from our offices. Um, okay. he, it, it's true, I think, to say that UKIP, at least then, I don't know how it is now, but then it was a one-man one band. So it was um, him? Yeah, it was him. With, with um, you know, also we had uh, Godfrey Bloom. We had a few other kind of characters who, yeah. who, who in their own right were, were pushing the, the cause forward. But I mean, yeah. he was, yeah, he didn't. The funny, the, the curious thing about about Nigel, in my opinion, he never understood 
the extent to which his own party was a one-issue party, mm. um, which was an amazing oversight. I, I, um, I confronted him on this once. I had the opportunity to go. I didn't often get to see him. You know, he was, okay. he was really occasionally he'd be there and you'd be able to catch him for a moment. Say, oh, what do you think about this? Or, but then he was waft out and he'd be on a flight to America. Or he was, he was, um, you know, he wasn't. Did he actually live in Brussels? Did he? Do you know what? Do these do the MEPs live in? Yeah, do they I live mean, there? yeah, he had a flat there. I don't know. I don't know how often he was in, in his flat though. Yeah. Um, he was. Uh, I think he probably spent more time in, in London. Um, okay. And um, I mean, he was always he was always on the move. Um, and then I, I remember I remember once I, I managed to pin him down. I said um, and, and asked him. He was putting up candidates, UKIP candidates in constituencies where they already had a Eurosceptic MP, okay. Okay. so he's standing for Westminster and splitting the Eurosceptic vote. And I said, the beautiful, beautiful thing about this party is that we can get everything done without getting a single seat in Westminster. Mm. I think, by the way, I think they now realise that. I think they're now standing down, if I understand, in, in places where, where they have yeah. a good Eurosceptic base. So they've, they've made that, that compromise. And he said... Um, well, I completely, I completely understand what you're saying, Alexander. But the thing is, if I get in the London Underground now, there are people who tell me that they're going to vote for UKIP because of our policy on national defence and our policy on education and our policy on, uh, I don't know, the NHS. What are, what are our policies in the end? Does anyone know? That's beside the point. But nobody, it really is a one-issue party, okay? And it's a really good issue, but I can't, I can't, I've never met anyone who really thought otherwise. And it would be, I tell you what would happen, if they got into a position of power, which they weren't, but if they did, it would be like the Liberal Democrats in 2010. They'd be, they have so many different ideas, and it's such a fragmented and wide party of membership. That's a beautiful thing about it. You, know, you, have, you have communists, you have kind of um, working class people from the Humber, you've got, you know, um, you know the, the, the wealthy demographic from Kensington and Chelsea, everyone. Uh, collaborating around really the central issues. You could never, you could never ever form a government with that you, kind of character. Yeah. And, he, and the funny thing was, I really don't think he got that it, it, at the time. I don't, maybe, maybe, but of course, I was only, I, I, I was only a lowly staffer. He might not have, he, he wouldn't have said that to me if he understood that. I don't know, but he's, I do think he's clever. So, what was he? I mean, and he's also a nice guy. So when he was there, because I love this character, let's call it yeah. character study, okay? Yeah. So I want to focus on a little bit on the character study. I've met quite a few famous people or well-known politicians yeah. in my life, accidentally, always accidentally. And I suppose part of my character and what I do, I always very observe them to see how they are, to yeah. see what psychology is leaking out of their body language, all kinds of things, you know? It's like, and so, so what kind, I mean, if we're trying to characterize his, Okay, one of, one of the things he's pretty famous for, I suppose, in the press is, is goading in Parliament. So he'll stand up <laughs> and goad people and, like, provoke them. And, yeah. and for whatever reason, sometimes you watch the respondents getting offended. Sometimes yeah. you watch them laughing because he's ridiculous. I mean, what was his belief in doing that from what you observed? I mean, you observing that was just out of true belief? Or was he, he was, genuinely just trying to provoke well, for fun? Well, firstly, I mean... Practically, what he was doing was addressing the gallery. 
Okay. I mean, he knew that the television cameras were worth more than everyone else in the parliament. Okay. I'm not sure that everyone in that parliament realised that, actually. No. I really think there are people in there who are there to have a sensible debate about fisheries and agriculture. And but, you know, what's the point of having a sensible debate in a place like that when it's all going to go in one direction, which is more Europe? You know? um, so so he, knew, he knew, I suppose, he must have known that it was a performance for the public gallery. Um, so it's pretty clever like that. He knew how to connect with people. I don't think he even had to be very clever to realise that. I mean, uh, he just knew how to do it. He knew how to do it. He knew that if, I mean, he knew that there's a, a, a frustration mounting at no. home against against the European project, and he knew that it would be quite cathartic for people to watch. Um, and, and I tell you, actually, Godfrey Bloom, his, who eventually got thrown out for going a bit over the top, um, he was really good at that. I mean, he 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 sort of used to to um, to provoke uh, German socialist. MEPs by shouting um, a sort of wartime slogans at them when they came out with um, with an opinion that we needed one government for the whole of Europe with one fiscal policy and that sort of thing. He uh, he really knew how to uh, to address the, the gallery. All right, wait a second. I'm just going to check this camera quickly. I'm not turning it off. I want to see how much time I've got left in the recording. One hour and twenty nine minutes. Oh, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just know, this is a bit of an ad hoc setup here, but you know, yeah. whatever, I like it. So, because, like, yeah, I mean, these characters, like Nigel Farage, it seems like almost single handedly him and Boris Johnson are responsible for Brexit. And. No, they're not. Who is? Or are they just front Everyone is. Everyone. Yeah. yeah. Now, 52% of us. 52%. I love this number. Is it really 52%? <laughs> Everyone argues about it's only 52% of 30%. 50, or, 52 are the ones who voted. Uh, yeah, 52% of, or 51%. Is it 51 point something? Whatever I don't know. And of course, of course, the, the people who have really have been pushing it right from the beginning are those are the antagonists in this, the people who say, shut up, don't talk about it, we need more Europe. Because it, actually, I think it becomes more and more obvious. Then the people aren't being heard when they when they we would never have got to this stage if somebody had stood up quite early on and said so why does we Nigel believe in uh -huh. no Europe what is his core belief like he's a character he's, he's well because he he doesn't seem to is he that's an interesting he can't do it for the if he's not going to win in Parliament yeah, yeah he's not doing it for personal is he doing it for personal power no no he's not I really don't think he is um, he had he was. Um, I mean, he's he's in pretty impoverished now compared to before when he was, a, I think, he's a commodities exchanger or something like that. I, yeah. I really don't think he's doing it for personal power. So what's his um, what's his beef? What's his idea? What's he? Does he just somebody believes in a subject and found any way to try and join I, in? Yeah, I think I think it's, it is it is that. Okay. Um, um, I mean, did you find yourself? Know. Did you find yourself? Uh, I mean, like, I've met Tony Blair once, mm -hmm. for example, mm -hmm. and chatting with him, mm -hmm. and he's a nice guy, they you are. know? <laughs> nice guy. Yeah. It's, uh, I met him in a benign situation. Mm -hmm. Subjects were very, like, benign. We mm -hmm. talked about all kinds of things in life, but it was, it was a... Uh, he was a nice guy. Nothing yeah. that I'd ever seen or heard in the press mm. came out. It wasn't like he was oozing this 
hate that a large portion of the world have towards him yeah. for various yeah, political. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I mean, I've never met him, but I'm sure. Do you know what I mean? He was a yeah. nice guy. He was a very clever, nice guy. Stood yeah. very tall. Very tall. You don't see that, on, you know, in the, in the yeah. TV unless you meet him. Tall, straight back, nice guy. Huge. Even even the Millibands are tall. You wouldn't think it, but they are. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Nigel fits that kind of, it's the same, is it? I mean, when you meet him as a person, if he was sat here now, mm. he would join in our conversation with you. How would he be? Very personable. Yeah? Bit of a lad. He, um, it's true that, uh, it's true that he can drink like a fish. Yeah. I've been, I've been on, I think I've been on the lash with him. I mean, you know, the whole office would go to, to Plast Lux and, and, and we'd start drinking. Hey, have another one. Have another one. It's Belgium, of course, so, you know, yeah. having beer. So. Left and um, he's amazing. I mean, he, he, can, um, he can maintain the vertical for much longer than anybody else. And he doesn't seem to be affected. I mean, I woke up once. It's a funny, funny thing. I woke up once with my, my face, my cheek pressed against the parquet floor of a friend's drawing room. I was still fully closed, and the morning sunlight was sort of coming in through these these, um, these windows, float glass windows. And she came in to the to the the room where I was sleeping on the floor, and she flung a copy of the Spectator at me. The Spectator, Spectator Who's magazine. She? You mean? Oh, a friend of mine in Brussels, okay, right? Yeah. Who worked for for a, for another MEP. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> the article on the page was. Um, don't go drinking with Nigel Farage. I think it was uh, James Derenkov or someone had been drinking with Nigel Farage a week before, and he's issuing this warning about how he came home with an unexplained nosebleed and his suit all crumpled. And, that and you kind of, of experienced that I, Spectator I, I had article. To, I, had to, I, had to, I had to read that Spectator article, having been through the same ordeal. Okay. He really, he really was a, a machine like that. I, I don't know. Interesting. How he could manage, but he did. <laughs> yeah. So. And, and you know he'll be he'll be straight up in the office the next mm. day. I think it's something they learn to do in the city of London. Mm. So now, what are you knowing about the character and what you saw in the interactions? Yeah. Why would he be going and hanging out with Donald Trump? What would that be about? That be about? I don't know, I don't know where that goes back to. I've I've, I've never um, I've never met either Donald Trump or anyone on his team. I don't know when that friendship started to develop, but I suppose would that, that be core based on politics? That kind of relationship. <laughs> Politics. Well, I don't know. I mean, certainly they both buddies. have this very strong hubris of, of the national interest, and the, yeah. the, and they're both pandering to a kind of we need to close the borders um, demographic. Mm. Um, the thing is about about the, the reason for, for Brexit is, I suppose that quite early on, UKIP did what I suppose all political parties have to do, which is to try to appeal to people's economic sense. If we get out of the European Union, we'll have, I don't know, 34 million extra for the NHS. Did or Nigel believe that? I don't know. I think... I think I don't what did he believe on the economic I, side of it? Because that's the main negative thing against... I don't want to misrepresent anything. Is it? I can't remember what he believed. The point was that when I joined, that wasn't really something we were worried about. Nobody was it worrying about it. Well, I mean, it was more idealistic, worry. what people were talking they about. They did worry, but I'm not an economist, and most people who vote for UKIP are not economists. And I think a lot of people who would vote for UKIP would be doing so against their own perceived economic interests. Mm. I mean, if we always voted with economic pragmatism, we'd never have gone to war against Hitler, would we? I mean, yeah. there, are certain, there are certain things which have to take priority over that. Um, you know, I, I, 
I hold my hand up and say I would, I would, I would have voted um, to, to, to leave even if I had thought that it would make us poorer. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I, I think it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a sellout to start to worry about economics because once you get into an argument about economics, there's always going to be another economist, economist who will uh, say something different from the other side. So economists become a kind of, you know, how they're a little bit like. So you think the truth of like Brexit like is really it is an idealistic battle, and it always was. Yeah, I think so. And it was nothing oh, yeah. to do with. I think it plays with... on something much deeper in, in the in the in the hubris than than concern over over how much tax we're going to be paying next year. So was Nigel Farage? Was he concerned about people? So you know the general sense of many, because I mean since then mm. it's like the the well we've got. I don't know how many European nationals live in the UK. Mm. Probably, I think. Isn't like well, he was married to a German back then. Yeah. So he wasn't. He was a European. He oh, was. Yeah. He was making the most of being European. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think. I think if you look on the, the Eurosceptic wing of the European Parliament, you'll find that actually they're probably more cosmopolitan than um, than a lot of the people who. Who are voting? To, I think there's a kind of cul-de-sac armchair cosmopolitanism among people who say we've got to be part of this European project, as if they can sort of um, um, experience experience the, the cultural milieu of Europe from from the from cul-de-sac. The, well, I don't know, but without you can't. I do you know what? I, I when I I studied in Hungary, yeah, and there are an awful lot of Erasmus students there. Mm -hmm. And they all lived in one hall of residence, whereas um, whereas I studied in, I enrolled as if I, if I as if I were a citizen of Hungary, I suppose, at this university. Yeah. And you'd see these, and you'd see these students being shuffled. I once saw them lost in the town centre. They were all sort of together, and they didn't mm. didn't know where they were. You can't, in the end, join another culture on the terms of. The safety of your own culture. It's true. You have to make that effort yourself. Yeah, you have you to learn about the culture exactly. and start to integrate. You can't expect some government to do this for you. So, it's not work. did Nigel join the European culture? Then he yeah, got. He actually. Much. He he's not as British as you as you'd think he is in the sense of because he's been exposed to it. He's lived yeah, there. He's, 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 he's married he's, to a German. It's it's yeah, like yeah, yeah. He's or was married to a German. So he knows his own, his own mentality has been stretched into a, into a broad opinion. I, su I suppose it has, but I've never... I mean, never then, but he still wanted to quit Europe. He well, wanted yes, to get he out. Would, he would make it, he, yeah, but you see, he'd make a distinction between Europe, the political project, and Europe, the, the, the cultural. Okay. So uh, what was his idea? Okay, so this is interesting. That's an interesting point. So he'd make a distinction between Europe, the politics, and Europe, the cultural integration. Yeah, almost. So... Part of the argument of Brexiting was against uh, immigration, which is cultural, is it? Or is it economic? Or is it political? Because it's, I always learned at school you had push and pull factors. The reason you have immigration is there are push factors sending people away from their base, and there are pull factors attracting them to a pole of interest. It could be, in this case, I was to study in Brazil, okay? So I think most children probably at some point have studied immigration at that point. And it's like, so how does one form an opinion? I mean, there's famous shots of him standing, was it standing in front of like a, 
poster of immigrants lining up on a border somewhere in Hungary or something. I don't yeah, know. That's right. There's yeah. some horrific images done. Yeah. But it's they're like coming, they're coming for your jobs or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, no. But a character like that, you've, you've observed yeah. doing that. Do, have they have they got a formulated, dedicated, uh, well constructed opinion, or are they just sort of talking about it in more of a throwaway stance. So they're using cultural immigration as more of a throwaway, well, let's just chuck that in there just because that will be, it'll appeal to a sort of, maybe they don't think about it in a sort of, uh, well, I mean, in, a, in an open way, but in the back of their head, they're like, oh, that'll get rile people up a bit. I in, mean, in the, I, don't know, I don't know what goes on in the back. I can't, I can't get into the internal cinema of something yeah. like that, but... I mean, obviously, um, there is a path of least resistance if you want to energize the most people in a particular um, cause. And I suppose that, I suppose we probably couldn't have done what we did without some undesirable factions perhaps on our side. Like any party, you have to appeal to people who, you're never going to, you're never going to get the ideal Labour voter, are you? Or the ideal Conservative voter, or the ideal Brexiter. Mm. Um, Yes, I mean, there is a certain anti-immigration hubris in Britain. Of course, they would have voted... Well, it's in an a, island. Yeah. I mean, anything that's an island. I mean, if you go to the Isle of Wight, I mean, they're kind of anti-mainland. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, it's like... Yeah, they, I suppose... Um, I don't know. There's a balance between... Um, uh, I can't... You know, you, you talk about that, that, that immigration... Poster. I think he was standing in, was it Bosnia or somewhere? And the column of refugees. I do vaguely remember that. Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, the point, the point he would have been making is that we have to have some sort of control over the border. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I'm going to pause a moment. Hang on a second. Just wait. I'm just going to empty the mm -hmm. the video files that have filled this one up because there's some in there that. Oh, there's only one. Oh, it's in 4K. That's what. It, I've run out of space on that card. Yeah. Oops, but we've got still a lot of space on this card. Okay. So, what am I going to do? Uh, there's only one file. And there's no space left. This has got the 32 gig card in it. We've run out of space. On this card, yes. But on this one, we're still recording. It's all right. I can still just fun. keep on talking at the camera. Well, you can look at me. It doesn't really matter. All I right. just disappear off the, the video for a bit. Well, it doesn't matter. Mm. But... Uh, Oh well. So, so that's because I did it in 4K. <laughs> so, I know what we can do. Let's move the video to both of us. There we go. Have some water. Do you want a sip of water? Okay. So we just have to change video a bit around because Batch fills the SKD card up on the other one. Uh, okay, so assuming Brexit actually takes place. It won't. It won't. No. It will, what will happen? What's going to happen? It, I think we'll get out in name. Right. It, it will be easy enough to satisfy most people that it has happened. And of course, the civil service in Whitehall will remain connected to the civil service in Brussels. I don't think it can actually happen. Um, is there a direct? Do they talk to each other? Is there like yeah, the head of 
health in Brussels, calls up the head of health yeah. in the UK, oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, and says, hi, how's it going, blah, blah, blah. I mean, do they have a friendly relationship? Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and look, um, it doesn't matter that the point is what we've achieved is that everyone is, is more than we could have dreamed of achieving when I joined them. Everyone is now talking about the interference of the continent in, in domestic affairs in Britain. And this is the end of the period of expansion for the European project. Right. They will not be able to take the sorts of liberties they would have been able to take if we had voted to remain. Okay. You know, this is a very clear line in the sand, um, and I think, I think uh, I'm, I'm pretty positive that this uh, this has achieved. What, what, well, I, I think I think what, what I hope would happen when I set out with, with these guys has has been done. I didn't think it would be done. Actually, I didn't think we'd ever get to this point. Did Nigel think that? Yes, he ever... yes, he's very bloody-minded. He really did. He, he really believed, believed he, to the end and, of the day. And, and he, he hats off to him. He's right, wasn't he? I, but I, you know, I, I gave up, and I thought, this is hopeless. This, this can never work. But no, he, he really, he, he believed it. He um, believes he could get it although, although he said, I think he said that um, on, on the night of the referendum itself, he thought that we'd lost the referendum. Mm. And it would have been a complete disaster if we had, because um, it would have given a license to Brussels to do whatever they wanted after that. They would have had a mandate from the British people, from you know one of the most powerful nations in the Union, to do whatever they wanted. So it's a very good thing they lost. Um, but it doesn't mean that we're going to get to leave the Union on... I can't see quite how we can, because we're, we're still in it, because we're sandwiched between Southern Ireland or ERA, or Republic of Ireland, whichever correct term, I'm just going to yeah. geographical terms. Republic of Ireland and Europe, so we're in the middle of it still, really. We're not out of it. It's like we're in it. I mean, it's it's closer to get, say, I mean, it's only 20 miles. You can stand on the south coast of the UK and you see the lights of France just yeah. there. And it's like, it's and not that far. I mean, yes. you know. And also, remember, at the top of our own hierarchy of governments in, in the United Kingdom, you're yeah. always going to get a cadre of people who have sort of hit the top and they want to go further. If they're ambitious in their political interests, they're always going to want some sort of integration with abroad, and they're never going to admit that they are powerless to affect something in Britain if the continent says that they're not allowed to. So you're always going to get this silence about exactly how much power the, is exercised from abroad. Okay. But, you know, we live uh, in this uh, era of, of mass information and, and uh, you know, very fast trade and all that sort of thing. We're always going to be beholden to foreign interest anyway, with commercial interest, that sort of thing. We, we, we probably have, at any one time in Britain, we probably have a, a shorter supply of food than we would have done at the height of the blockades in the Second World War. We're completely dependent upon outside infrastructure for everything. Yeah. So, I mean, we're always going to have a certain element of foreign governments, but, uh, governments, but now we talk about it, and that's... Uh, that's a great step forward. Okay. So, what will happen to Nigel then? Let's call him Nigel. Nige. <laughs> what happen, will, will happen to Nigel Farage as he, as he. I hope, I hope they get. After I, hope he's, I hope he's recognised that having done a great job, I hope they stick him in the Lords or something. Um, really? Yeah, when you think of the spivs they put in there now, I think, I think Nigel definitely more than deserves, uh, 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 you know, these sorts of uh, honours. Showered on him. I think he put up with a lot of nonsense um, for a long time. 
he was ignored for, for most of the time he was pushing this agenda, which in fact most people in the end voted for. Um, I mean, you agreed with him or you didn't? Because it's like... Well, I agreed, I agree. He was necessary um, to push... Okay, it was absolutely essential that we had at some point a, a discussion about how much how much influence Brussels exercised mm -hmm. in Britain. I can't see how we would have even started that discussion without what we've gone through. Okay. The actual exit from the European Union, I voted for it. I hope it would be nice to think it could happen, but it won't. I, don't, mm. I, did, I just don't think it's possible. Um, but yeah, I mean, I agreed. I voted against it. You voted against it. <laughs> I, but yeah. like, uh, but... Uh, but it's. But I voted against it because I was more thinking. I mean, I have children which are. By by national. By a European national, you know. I have. It's like. I work all over the continent. You know, I'm here, there, and everywhere. I sort of integrate well with people. My reasons for liking it would be. Very much based on the experience of just sort yes. of. Fluid, fl being able to fluidly go wherever I like and do whatever I like yeah. within, so, okay, everyone says, oh, it's another country, but really and honestly, between every Western democracy, there's way more similarity than there is difference. Yeah. I mean, pretty much, you know, the differences are based on sort of minutiae rather than actual big things. <laughs> so my problem when I heard all of this was when it was coming up with Brexit, was like, well, it's just, it's just riling up the wrong, for the wrong reason. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas what actually you're saying... A lot of it is for the wrong reason. An awful, yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong, an awful lot of racist skinheads and thugs are, are very energised by this and encouraged by it. And know? it's all the, because it's the a, wrong things were said. Well, when you're saying, it, yeah. what you're actually saying yeah. is that something has occurred for the wrong reasons, maybe. Yeah. Well, my, I'm saying that, but, but you could possibly put that in perspective what you've been talking about but by people who were trying to say the technicality of what happens day to day is is not giving but I'm confused slightly so the flexibility of so taking power we're trying to leave Europe to take power away from the, from the Commission but fundamentally we can't really take power away from and, the and the courts and so forth we can't really do that so it doesn't make any difference. I, I don't think I don't think we will persuade our domestic civil service to uh, issue European governments. So when they come to crafting a law with a MP, they're still going to follow the European general direction on it, for example. But for now. For now. I mean, yes, for now. I think I think the thing is that the the institutions, the lower institutions of governments in Britain are so bent toward this kind of uh, internationalism, this, this outlook, they, that you're not, you're not going to get a cooperation between them and a parliament which wants to really isolate Britain. So we're completely buffered from this, this thing of isolationism, which, which is what I think a lot of people wanted. Mm -hmm. when they voted okay. to leave. They wanted to isolate themselves, I cut think, themselves I off. Think, I think, well, as you talk about the, the negative interests which were pushing for Brexit, I think there was 
I think there probably was a faction which wanted a level of isolationism. They wanted a complete Did Nigel want isolationism? No, no we, what no, we want? have always seen this as being able to join a, a, a wider, um, uh, the wider trade opportunities with the rest of the world. You know, um, we wanted um, world trade, world trade organisation deals, um, and you know, I think we could possibly get to that level. So Nigel Farage did not want, and you got the impression when working and living in that environment of work there, mm. you got the impression that he did not want to cut us off. He yeah. wanted us to just go beyond, well what gave him that desire to do that? Where does that idea come from? His uh, well, you, you, uh, the, the, um, the, 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 uh, um, if you're in the European Union, you have to conform to certain trade standards, yeah. and that's the thing which... Uh, by definition, are going to hold you back from from uh, from trading with, with the outside. Okay. Um, it's to do with uh, taxation levels and yeah. industrial standards too. Yeah. Um, and a general ability to shape your domestic workforce and economy to fit the needs. So, of did Mr. Farage have an idea, thinking that that would he by being out of Europe? His motivation was, oh, we can have a more secure future, we can yeah. be more flexible, we can do yeah. this and that. Yeah, he actually believed that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So do I. Yeah. Okay. Flexibility, that's, 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 that's the key word. Yeah. So he was looking at... So he... Because that's more of like an intelligent thought. Well, not an intelligent thought, that's more way, of a detailed thought way, pattern. Flexibility, not wealth. I don't, that was what I he don't was know, thinking. I don't know about wealth. I, because I'm not an economist. I don't understand. Yeah. But, but, but flexibility. He was you, believing you, in uh, flexibility. You, can, you have to have this course of self-determination. So you can be flexible. Yeah. And that was coming across from... I got... I don't... Well, I, don't, I can't speak for him, but I, that was the impression I, I got. Because we don't tend to pick up on these points. We tend to, it always tends to be portrayed a little bit like... Uh, oh, we'll get so, like extra a, money for the NHS. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, like one, one it's sort of a, uh, more of a tabloid-esque way of being, you know, where they just take one issue which yeah, well, look, and just makes a lot of noise, you know, and says that, but they don't get into the detail and the actual... The, the belief and the because everyone's got feelings. Maybe he has feelings which are, yeah. he feels what he's saying, does he? But we're not. We're, look, we're not Switzerland. The average British voter responds to jingoes. Um, so that's that's what we put out, and that's what everyone puts out. I mean, yeah, don't, and of course, uh, I'm sure uh, you know, UKIP are guilty of it. But you know, there are an awful lot of people who are going to be voting for Jeremy Corbyn in this election because I don't know they want to screw the West over somehow. You know. It's, you know, you, you've got to play on the, on the hubris of the, of the voters. Uh, um, so tell me the last thing before we yeah. finish, I think. Tell me something, an overwhelming sensation you got of somebody who, in historical terms, has punched way above his... Way above his weight. Way above his weight. Yeah. I mean, we've got literally got what I thought was... Literally, monster raving loony, because there was a party yeah. called the Monster Raving Loony yeah. Party in the British yeah. Great Britain. It was a, that kind of character that suddenly was called somehow. Yeah. Sorry? Called Labour now. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but it was cool, but it was like in the, in the main political. Well, had a. Well, it was in European politics, it got voted in European level. Yeah. And at the same time, it's like 
he was, and I, I didn't quite understand how somebody saying sort of the things he was saying could be taken seriously and voted in. But now that character, his ideas, his character has been pushed ahead, contributed to the Brexit vote, and it's a, it's a globally important character. I don't understand how that happened. It's, I mean, would he know? This is what happens. This is what happens if somebody speaks honestly, unfettered from a party whip, or, or anything like that. I think, I think really what we can, what we can gather from, from the meteoric rise of not just people like Nigel, but also people like Donald, is that people are fed up of listening to people listening to their political representatives curb their own thoughts in a politically correct way, trying to couch everything in a, in a civilised medium. Uh, and I think we've, we've entered this golden, golden age of people who now stand up and just speak the truth because they don't care, they don't have the inhibition of worrying about what other people are going to think if they just say what they think. And because that's automatically going to be quite attractive. So, so you know... Uh, that's populism, isn't it? Of course it is, yes. We're, we're entering a kind of Byzantine era of, of, um, of, of emperors, yeah. Yeah, and, and, but do you know what? It's okay because we mustn't make the mistake of thinking that our votes really count for that much anymore. We still live in a democracy, but the power to affect things has shifted from... So how do we change things? I, mean, how, no, I, mean, think, I think there are, there are individual journalists who are more important and more powerful now than government ministers. That one's turned. No, that one's turned off. That's all right. That one's still going. Um, We've still got an hour left. Right. I think. Yeah. How do we change things? We 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 can we can write. We can change things. We can. I mean, I, I used to work in China. You, there's an awful lot of, of democracy that's simply expressed through the wallet. You know, if you can if you can decide between different producers of things, and you can you can vote with your wallet. Mm. Um, I don't think. I think you're going to get more and more of this. Uh, of this, uh, what sounds like extremist rhetoric in, from, mm. from the political cadre, but it's going to mean less and less because they have less and yeah. less power. Again, the civil yeah. service control thing. So can you sum up Nigel Farage as a character then? What as does he <laughs> characterise him? I think he's... Um, well, he believes in how he acts and how, okay. true, how close, how he is in person compared to how we see him in the media. He's a good man. That doesn't necessarily mean he's a nice man, although I think he is nice. But you have to make this distinction between somebody who is good and upright and therefore quite brutal sometimes in the way he'll approach things. Mm. Um, uh, you know, some of the saints were very difficult characters. Um, uh, so that's his sort of... That's his, he's uh, very fun. It's well. fun to hang very, out with. Very fun to hang out with. Not that I did as much as I would have liked to have done. And work, and work with. Well, yeah, I mean, that I was able to get on with my own things in there was um, probably made me more productive. Is he open-minded? open-minded. Yes, I think he is, because he's, because in a way he's, as far as I saw him, he was always quite one-track-minded in his pursuit of a single girl. And I don't think you can... Because he had a German wife. You've got to be open-minded to have a German, a German wife. wife. Yeah, in I the think. sense of, you know, it's a different culture. I was never married to a German, I don't know. But, uh, 
what I'm saying. It's not, but you've got to be open-minded to step outside your British, where you're born, yeah. do you know what I mean? To join in very, with other cultures. Yeah, he was, he was, I tell you something, he was much more accepting of any other point of view than, than I think you'd find a lot of the, uh, the, the zealots on, on the political mainstream. Are. So you could have, so would he shout you down? No, he wouldn't. He would hear, he would hear an opinion which he didn't agree with and he'd consider it. Really? I th yes, I think he would, actually. And I think more so than, you know, the average student union uh, Corbynite would. And not, not that there's anything wrong with the yeah. average student union Corbynite, it takes all sorts. But, uh, but I, I think, actually, I think it, it should be said that someone like Nigel Farage, because he's had to, to fight his way through a, a sea of, of opposition from every single side, from the, from the mainstream and against every institution, I think it... You, you can't do that unless you have quite a lot of empathy with the way other people think, and I think that's overlooked about him, actually. Okay. I think he's, he, to have gotten to where he has, you'd have to be quite um, open-minded. Open yeah. Although I don't think he ever deviated from the, from, from the course of what he was after. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, I might say even he's perhaps a slightly limited character in that respect, but I don't think you'd ever be offended or or dismissive of a point of view. I mean, when you think about the people he's got to get voting for him, that wide church of membership, he's at the top of... He's got to stick on an issue. He can't be... Yeah, he, he has to accept everybody from all backgrounds. You can't, you can't have such a broad party of membership as UKIP without being able to listen to a working-class Labour voter and uh, you know, a banker in the city of London and you know, this, this huge demographic, which, which he depends upon. So, yes, he's open-minded. Interesting. Mm. I'm not really quite sure how to finish this because I did this podcast out of, I suppose, interest because when I meet people that worked close morbid to... Morbid fascination. Morbid fascination, worked close to power, joined in with seeing how the mechanisms function or don't function or are slow and sticky or mm. whatever they are. It's like, it's interesting. I mean, it's just more information out there, but... Essentially, we're looking at a character who has currently, I mean, changed the world a bit. No. Yeah. Is that good? Yes. I think. Interesting. It makes me feel uncomfortable even doing this podcast, but really? at the same time, <laughs> I want to do it. Why? I suppose because. We're doing exactly what I aim to do, which is to talk about and go through the reality of how people are yeah. and the mechanisms. And I've just, we've done that. We've spoken about the reality. We haven't... I, don't, I can't sit there and say I'm coming from any particular direction. I'm sat here going, okay, you know, I have some factual information I can pull out and say, well, let's do, this is interesting, this is not. But it's like... At the same time, I'm like, I'm not really quite sure what I'm doing here, but at the same time, I'm interested in the whole, it's the, it's the story, do you know what I mean? It's like, it's an element of the story, you've observed the character, you've seen what he's done, you've met him, you've mm. gone drinking with him, you suffered the same fate as a spectator journalist. Yeah. <laughs> and you'd say he's an open-minded individual. Yeah. And then you've got a huge section of society that is saying, oh my God. Clearly his mind is bigger. Yeah, Brexit's, yeah. but this is like an insight into 
a little a little insight. Obviously, way more hours of study and chat to to discover more. But it would be like a little insight into the background of uh, a character that's yeah, yeah that's kind of changed the world a bit by being, as you said, bloody minded. Uh, I don't. I'm not sure if I did say that, but yes, I'll, I'll give him that. Bloody minded. Yeah. On that subject, just stuck to it and kept going, kept going, kept, kept going. going. Absolutely. Interesting. And uh, yeah. Anyway, well, thank you very much, Alex. Oh, no, thank you. That was, very, that was quite interesting. I'm glad I got that anecdote about the, the way the commission works with the Parliament off my chest. That's important. That's very uh, important. Cool. All right. Well, like and subscribe.